Republicans have really lost track you know, what they need to be to be a successful conservative party. It also became the case over time that the Democrats lost track of what it would take to be a successful and productive liberal party. Hello, I'm Jeff Tavisservis for the Niskanen Center. Welcome to the Vital Center podcast, where we try to sort through the problems of the muddled, moderate majority of Americans, drawing upon history, biography, and current events. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Roy Teixeira, the noted political scientist, commentator, and demographer. Uh, he was a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress from 2003 to 2022, and last year he joined the American Enterprise Institute as a non-resident senior fellow. His work there focuses on the transformation of party coalitions and the future of American electoral politics. He is the author of numerous books, including a book expected to be out later this year entitled Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Soul of the Party in the Age of Extremes. And he is the co-founder and politics editor of The Liberal Patriot, which recently expanded from a part-time newsletter into a full-time online publication and nonprofit organization. Welcome, Rui. Glad to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. And uh, I just want to invite all your listeners to subscribe to the Liberal Patriot because not only is it great, it's free. It's free. We don't Fantastic. ask for money. We just want your attention and uh, for some thoughtful commentary and analysis. That's all we ask. And how will they find you, Roy? Well, just Google the Liberal Patriot and, and that, that puppy will come right up. And you just you know click on that and then you click subscribe. It couldn't be easier. Well, that's great. Um, and congratulations on the ascent of the Liberal Patriot. Uh, what, well, does this new, much. what does this new expansion entail? Well, the new expansion entails several things. Most obviously, we are now uh, including a lot of other contributors. I mean, we basically, for the first couple of years, we ran off of our own efforts. Myself, John Halpin, Brian Katulis, and Peter Jewell, all people who were at the Center for American Progress at the time, and now we're sort of all defrocked in and other places, but we would each write, you know, a column a week, and that's kind of how we expanded. But now we have some backing, and we're bringing in lots of other contributors. Like today, we had John Judas writing about the Trump indictment. Earlier this week, we uh, we're going to have a regular monthly feature uh, column from Tim Ryan, uh, the the guy who almost became senator from Ohio, gave uh, Vance a good run for his money, and he's going to write dispatches from the heartland for us. So that's, you know, we've had other, we had Michael uh, Baharin of, of Blue Compass Analytics wrote an interesting column for us about the sort of shortfall of Democratic votes in urban areas, core urban areas, as opposed to suburbs, and what that means for the Democrats, particularly in Rust Belt states. So, you know, what stuff about foreign policy, we have stuff about the philosophy of life, <laughs> the fate of the universe, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, we, we try to cover a wide, uh, a wide remit. And above all, our commitment is to, you know, promote a free-ranging dialogue in the center-right and center-left to people who want, you know, sort of a more moderate and effective politics and don't really endorse the extremes of either the Democratic or Republican Party. We're also going to do some polling. We are going to do about five big nationwide polls a year with uh, 3,000 people. And we're going to look at sort of evolving issues and really, in a sense, drill down on this question of who is the middle? Who are they? Demographically, politically, attitudinally, where are they located? Uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there, Jeff, who, you know, I don't think we understand very well because they're so not like us, right? They don't think about politics a lot, you know, and those are the people we need to engage and reach and, and will ultimately decide which direction the U.S. goes in politically. It's sort of not only the moderate middle, but to some extent, the non-political, you know, it's a non-political junkie middle. They just don't think and talk and act like we do. And we need to understand them better. And so that's one of, one of our goals. We're also going to do some policy work uh, to try to sort of sketch out a liberal patriot program on a variety of different areas like globalization, like the workforce development, like the so-called green transition and, and lots of things. So, yeah, we may even have a podcast. Who knows? And if we have a podcast, you'll have to come on. But, but we are trying to be sort of a much broader and more full service, as you say, nonprofit organization, not just a... Uh, you know, so Substack that puts out a bunch of columns uh, from us, right? Or we want to involve lots more people. We want to do lots more things. We want to really be a hub for the kind of discussion I was I was alluding to, um, which would include you, for example. You, well, Jeff a Service, could write for the Liberal Patriot. We would welcome well, you. Thank you. Uh, I, w I would look forward to that. I have been a big fan even of those early columns from when you started the uh, Liberal Patriot in 2021. But I'm curious to know more about why 
you felt moved to start the book? Oh, okay. That's a good question. Um, it kind of went down like this. You know, the cabal I mentioned, the four people, we were all at CAP. We were friends. We talked a lot. We would go see music together, drink beer together, and we would like frequently grouse about <laughs> where we thought CAP was going and that they seemed to be ever more, ever less of a think tank, ever more of an advocacy organization. There was ever less actual thinking about what we were doing. There was more of a closed sort of epistemic closure, as people used to say about the conservatives. It was true of these liberals as well, we thought, that nobody was willing to think new thoughts. Uh, people were mostly focused on trying to support whatever the Democrats had done last week and what they might do next week. And that just wasn't very interesting, especially if you didn't think the Democrats were moving in a productive direction. I mean, you, you couldn't really criticize that from within CAP, that we were we had plenty, we were plenty dubious about what was going on ever since the ascension of Trump, a lot of us had felt, certainly me in particular, that Democrats had really not understood the message the electorate was sending, was really not understanding the way the country was evolving politically, were definitely making the wrong decision and really just typecasting all Trump voters as racist and xenophobic, and that's all there was to it. And there was this emerging working class problem that the Democrats had that they weren't adequately speaking too, and that they were way too, you know, basically were becoming hegemonized by college educated liberals who spoke and talk, particularly in metro areas, who speak and talk and think in a certain kind of way and think everyone else should and look down upon those who don't. So that was the genesis of our discussions. And then when uh, the, the uh, pandemic hit, we wound up like deciding we'd just talk once a week to keep in touch. And we kept on thinking, we've got to do something. You know, we should do something. This is like going off the rails. And certainly that was underscored for us in the George Floyd summer. You know, uh, that's really kind of where we say, oh, my God. I mean, this is just ridiculous. People are completely losing their minds about this stuff. They're going all in on identity politics. People don't seem to think, you know, twice about saying the U.S. is a white supremacist society and that all whites have white privilege. We must, you know, basically emphasize race and everything we say. Uh, and that didn't strike us as a really productive thing to do, either substantively or politically. And we kept on thinking, well, we should do something. We should write a manifesto. We should somehow try to provoke a discussion. Uh, maybe we should have a website. And then this thing called Substack came to our attention, which made it really easy to develop a newsletter that could go out to an email list you'd develop by the people who would, who would click and, and subscribe. And it wouldn't cost you anything. The way Substack makes its money is if you monetize your uh, your newsletter on the platform if you don't i mean it's free for anyone to use and it's actually a very for what it is it's an extremely user-friendly and effective platform so we started it as you said in early 2021 we actually started it around the time of the georgia runoffs and of course the january 6 riots at the capitol so it was kind of a weird time to do it in the sense that i think a lot of Democrats, who are, I guess, were more our target audience than not, um, were, you know, convinced we're on the verge of fascism. Uh, and, you know, they were thinking, oh, well, you know, what's the problem here? We just won the Georgia runoffs. I mean, you know, now we control everything. But our view is that we were, <laughs> Democrats were very, very, very far from having reinvented themselves. And they had tremendous vulnerabilities that were preventing them from forming a strong and dominant coalition and really achieving the things they wanted to achieve over the long haul. And it's Leading of working class voters was completely unacceptable for a party of the left. And they needed to approach things differently on both sociocultural issues and I would argue as well on economic issues. But that's another discussion. But, you know, that's the genesis of how we started the thing. And, you know, we were pleasantly surprised that, you know, our readership just kept on going up and up and up and up. I mean, it seemed like people were kind of thirsty for this kind of a message that was not reading from either party's playbook and was just trying to understand what the hell is going on and trying to speak more to the people who feel themselves without a political home at this point. So that's, that's in brief, I guess, where we came from. The politically homeless, uh, that's a large demographic, so I'm not surprised that you've had success, although I'm glad. Your departure from the Center for American Progress was a big deal inside the Beltway, but also outside of it. The Wall Street Journal even wrote mm -hmm. an editorial about it. Um, yeah. And it seemed... I found political asylum. Yeah, that was pretty funny. That was Those pretty lags funny. at the Wall Street Journal. Yes. Um, but it actually seemed significant in the sense that there were other people commenting on the fact that a lot of 
left-leaning organizations had been disintegrating, largely under the influence of very left younger staffers coming in and being unable to prevent disrupting the, the work of the organizations. So without getting to the exact office politics of it all, I mean, is it accurate to say that there was a problem that you saw over your time at the Center for American Progress with people on the left being unwilling to listen to dissent even from their own side? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, there are certainly some organizations, as Ryan Grimm detailed in his famous Intercept article, where there was this sort of almost junior staff rebellion, which basically kind of dragooned uh, the leadership into approaching politics in a way they perhaps weren't completely happy with and really restricted the kinds of things that you could do or say within the organization. But even within a place like CAP, where there was never really that kind of junior staff revolution on that scale. It was nevertheless the case that the junior staff was getting more and more, for want of a better word, woke, more and more focused on a certain kind of politics and using a certain kind of language. And at the same time, I think just as important and probably more important is that the leadership of the organization, the people who were in this you know, sort of really calling the shots and sort of even broader than that, in a sense, the people, the reference group are the sort of liberal Democratic Party politicians, there are the liberal interest groups, the advocacy groups. I mean, there was a narrowing of the acceptable realm of discourse within CAP, within these advocacy groups, and within certain sectors of the Democratic Party, where you just couldn't really discuss a lot of issues around crime and immigration, about gender ideology, race essentialism, even about climate. I mean, like, is it really, is it really the case that we can uh, move uh, rapidly to renewals, renewables uh, within 10 or 20 years? Uh, is that really the case? And just what is going on with climate change? I mean, what are the costs and benefits here? What are the trade-offs we have to consider as we move toward an energy transition, which let's face it, Jeff, I mean, I don't want to rain in anybody's parade. It's going to take decades, decades. And the idea that we'll even be net zero by 2050 is probably pretty fanciful. But, you know, that's not the kind of discussion you can have in most democratic activist circles these days. They are all in on the so-called Green New Deal and the sort of related emphasis on renewables. You know, it varies. I mean, some people at least have an interest in nuclear. I salute them for that. But, but I'm just saying the range of acceptable discourse was narrow, very narrow. And as a political guy who studies the American electorate, the trends thereof, the evolution of public opinion. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to be in a place where you can't actually point out some of the problems with how the Democrats are approaching things relative to, say, what the median voter would think, or even the median non-white working class voter. I mean, it's just people don't want to hear this stuff. They want more happy talk about the rising American electorate and how we need to mobilize our base. And, you know, basically everybody hates... MAGA, fascist, Trump, Republicans, and all we need to do is talk about that a lot. Things will happen. And, you know, look, I mean, it's not completely crazy. What else do they have to talk about these days? I mean, look at what happened in, right, uh, in Wisconsin, you know, where they, they crushed the Republicans in the state's Supreme Court race a lot because they talked a lot about, about abortion. And the Republican was sort of an election denialist. People hate that stuff. So, um, they want an easy victory. And I think that's really the democratic plan at this point is to run on sort of the association of the Republican Party with Trump and election nihilism and, you know, in terms of an actual issue, abortion. I think that's kind of it. <laughs> um, so, so, so let's, let's step back a moment from current politics. I always ask people who come on this podcast to tell me something about their background. Um, mm -hmm. I should say that one of your less heralded achievements is that you have taught Charlie Sykes over at the Bulwark podcast to correctly pronounce your name. Uh, ah. Charlie Sykes, who was put on earth to mangle all names longer than one syllable. Teixeira, I take it, is a Portuguese last name? That is correct. I am a Portuguese extraction, or at least on my paternal side. My father was actually born in Portugal and emigrated to Washington, uh, to America and to New York when he was a young man. I'm guessing you see uh, Hispanic American identity through a somewhat complicated lens then, perhaps. Well, right, though. I mean, I'm not really, you know, qualified as Hispanic. Sometimes I'm accused of being Hispan Hispanic intellectual or something. But the, um, the actual, you know, it's, it's arbitrary rules for deciding Hispanicness, Portuguese, especially continental Portuguese, right? Because that's my extraction, not Brazilian. If I was Brazilian, I would qualify, I think, as Hispanic. But 
since I'm Portuguese, Portuguese, I, I do not. So, I mean, I, I, I really approach Hispanic as, you know, an interesting political demographic uh, and try to understand the complexity. And that's something I've written about a lot is um, regardless of my personal origin story, you know, I just think it's fascinating the way Hispanic voters have been misunderstood by Democrats. And as a result of that, they're really starting to lose touch with what a lot of these voters really want and what they're oriented toward. So tell me something about uh, where you grew up and where you went to school and what some of your influences were. Oh, wow. Okay. This is really uh, kind of some deep cuts here from uh, the room to share a life. Well, I grew up around where I am now in Silver Spring, Maryland. You know, I live in another part of Silver Spring, but I grew up uh, near the Parkway Deli <laughs> in the Rock Creek Gardens apartments in, uh, in Silver Spring. And I went to Bethesda Chevy Chase High School. And then I went to college Initially, I went to Yale, but uh, they, they kicked me out for too much politics and dope smoking and not enough uh, studying. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's a long story. And then I wound up going to the University of Michigan. I was a history major. I was very radical. I was actually involved in Maoist politics. I don't know how many people you have on the show, uh, Jeff, who were like dyed in the wool Marxist-Leninists at one point. But but I, I was, you know, I was... Uh, I was a true believer, not a true, I mean, I was a very, you know, theoretically sophisticated Marxist-Leninist, but a Marxist-Leninist nonetheless. And, uh, you know, after a while, I concluded that, you know, when I was, I was in Michigan and Ann Arbor and, you know, I finally gave up on that and finished school, figured I needed to do something with my life since a revolution didn't seem likely to happen anytime soon. So I went to grad school in sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, where they actually had, oddly enough, a program and what was called Class Analysis and Historical Change. And this was Eric Olin Wright's program, this famous American Marxist, and it was sort of very, very high theoretical level Marxism and, you know, sort of very sort of pluralistic intellectually. And that interested me. So I kind of was doing that for a while, but I came, and I've always been very quantitative. So I was also part of the quantitative sort of stream of the department. And uh, gradually over time, I just... You know, I was still on the left, but, you know, I don't know, Marxism, I mean, how much of the variance does it really explain it's kind of where I came down? I mean, yeah, it's definitely got some insights there, but I just don't, it just doesn't explain the world as totalistically as Marxists want it to. So I became way, way more eclectic and pluralistic in my leftism over the course of being in Madison, you know, and by the time I got my PhD, I was really typed as more of just a quantitative political sociologist. I mean, as you know, uh, a lot of the people around National Review when Bill Buckley started it were repentant former Marxists. Um, and of course, a lot of the people who started what became the first iteration of neoconservatism yes. uh, were somewhat That's reformed true. Trotskyists as well. That's um, right. No, I'm, I'm, a big, I'm a big sectist. Uh, S-E-C-T. Sectist. Yes. I, I love his, the histories of sex and splits. Is it fair to say... That, and reformations. Is it fair to say that you retain some kind of a greater interest in class politics as opposed to cultural politics as a result. Well, absolutely. I mean, that, that Politico article, I guess they quoted me to that, you know, to that effect that one thing that put me off of cap and the currently existing, the current iteration of the left, such as it is, is that they, they really lost track of class politics and they really are seemingly, you know, inveigled by, you know, various, sort of boutique ideas about race and gender and the hierarchy and intersecting levels of oppression and all that jazz. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I'm much more, I mean, for want of a better term, as I believe I said, I'm a social Democrat. I mean, I think that there's a role for, important role for government in terms of uh, the role it plays in the economy, not only just uh, safety net type stuff, but also sort of industrial policy and sort of moving the economy in a direction that's productive for most people. And, you know, that's the most important thing, because that's how you're going to lift up and benefit the largest number of people, the largest number of working and lower middle class people who are the ones who really need assistance. And the idea that we should start sort of slicing and dicing things by race is just just a really bad idea politically. And, it, you know, and the, the people who need the most help are the black poor, the Latino poor, you know, the white poor. I mean, come on. I mean, this is, this is what people on the left have always been about. This is leftism. I mean, to some extent, I think what passes for leftism today, I don't even know how left it is to some extent, because it is so 
focused on other issues. It is so, I think, counterproductive politically. And I think it's prioritizing things that people on the left are typically not prioritized. Um, so your um, PhD in sociology uh, on mm-hmm. declining voter turnout was published in 1987 as Why Americans Don't Vote. Um, I understand that even then you were a skeptic of the idea that the path to democratic victory was just base mobilization. Yeah, no, that that's right. I wrote uh, back in the day for the late lamented public opinion magazine, which came out of AEI. And that's how I first met Carlin Bowman. I wrote an article for them coming off of some of the work I'd done in turnout, just pointing out if you looked at the 88 election, there was this whole sort of Jesse Jackson line about on the left of the party about how if we just mobilized, you know, our base, mobilized the base more aggressively, then, you know, we would have actually won this election. And I just showed quantitatively that wasn't true. You could like stipulate a higher level of turnout among black voters, but then, you know, that wasn't enough to make the loss among white middle class and working class voters that, you know, Dukakis had. So it just didn't make any sense, right? I mean, just you can say whatever you want about mobilizing the base, but the only way the magical thinking works is if you know some weird, you make weird assumptions, like 100% of your voters show up and no additional number of the other side shows up. And it certainly didn't make any sense in the context of the 1988 election. So, yeah, I mean, I think that kind of analysis just comes out of an understanding of the way the actual, the demographics of the actually existing electorate their proclivities as they are today, and what are the true differences between non-voters and voters? Because it's just not true that non-voters are way more radical than voters controlling for underlying demographics. In fact, in some ways, they tend to be more on the right, particularly on social issues. So the idea that it's really a matter of just getting your base out is, is questionable. And, you know, this is something I've written about too. I mean, one assumption here is like, I mean, one way it would sort of work, right, is this kind of thing. Well, let's let's assume that our voters, you know, Democratic-leaning voters, let's say they, their turnout goes up by 20 points. And let's assume that the other side turnout doesn't go up at all. Well, th- what, that would really, that would be great. That would really work. But the problem <laughs> is when you have these polarized elections, the other side turns out too. And in fact, there's pretty good political science evidence that uh, the other side tends to turn out more against your like super progressive or extreme positions, which actually then negates the effect of, of turning out more of your base supporters on the other side. So this is, this is not the royal road to victory, is, is juicing turnout. The royal road to victory is the boring old thing, persuasion. You actually have to convince some people who are inclined to vote for your opponent or at least interested in it to vote for you. You know, there it is. That's just, know, so, that's just so hard, though. You know? It's hard. That's really what it is. That's really hard, man. And much, but I really more want to say what I want to say and say it really <laughs> loudly and assume that will pay off at the polls, you know. So yeah. you get why people want to believe that, but I just think it's pretty dumb. So I can't um, neglect mentioning that um, in 2002, you published a bestseller co-authored with uh, John Judas, which a lot of listeners will have encountered, which is right. The Emerging Democratic Majority, which the New York Times later called one of the most influential political books of the 21st century. And the title, of course, was playing off of Kevin Phillips' 1969 bestseller, The Emerging Republican Majority. Mm-hmm. Um, that book was in part demographic projection, but it was also a strategy calling for the Republican Party to exploit tensions over civil rights and social change, basically, and attract mm-hmm. voters in what he called the Sun Belt in the South and the West and weld them to the traditionally conservative areas of the Midwest. Out of curiosity, how do you assess the Phillips book in hindsight? Well, I think it was pretty prescient, you know? I mean, I think uh, he, did a, he did a crackerjack job and it certainly worked for quite a while. And I think he did ID a lot of the trends, emerging trends that were gonna reshape and were reshaping politics. You know, eventually, uh, you know, the analysis ran out of gas. It, the country was changing in ways that were actually going to make that strategy less useful and call it into question. And in a sense, that's what the emerging Democratic majority was about. It was about looking at the ways in which the country is changing, demogra- was changing demographically, economically, ideologically, and basically making the argument Democrats were a better match for those changes. And if they played their cards right, they could take advantage of appealing to these emerging constituencies uh, that were 
you know, more oriented toward what we call it, what we call it in the book of progressive centrism. And by doing that, they could accentuate the contradictions in the Republican coalition and start to move some of these voters in their direction and be able to build a, you know, not a maybe FDR style realignment, but, but a sort of durable advantage in the electorate. But, you know, that, I think we were right about a lot of things, but one thing we didn't really, there's a couple of things we, we didn't really understand at the time, even though, you know, 2008 when Obama won such a solid victory and the Democrats looked like they're in the catbird seat, a lot of people thought, well, you know, they did figure it out. It was one thing we didn't really emphasize enough. It was in the book, but people totally ignored it. It was the idea that you've got to have a very strong level of white working class support doesn't mean you have to carry them by a majority, but given the actual demographic nature of the United States and given the way certain voters were concentrated in certain states, it, it just was, it was the case mathematically. You needed to have a pretty strong minority of this vote. And if that started going south on you, uh, it did call the whole strategy into question. So that was widely ignored, um, particularly after 2012, interestingly enough, despite the fact that you know, if you take a serious look at the 2012 election, the reason Obama wins isn't because the Obama, or it certainly isn't just because the so-called rising American electric turned out for him, it's because he, he clawed back a lot of white working class voters in the upper Midwest from the 2010 debacle by running against Romney as a populist and you know, sort of trying to capitalize on the auto bailout and all that. So, so that was a message not understood, that that was key to the Democrats' victory uh, in that election and they just immediately forgot about it and sort of continued putting their chips down on the rising America electorate. And then of course we get to Trump in 2016 where he basically rides white working class voting shifts to the presidency to everyone's dismay. So that was one thing I think people didn't understand about our analysis, that there was this sort of underpinning the Democrats have to retain the loyalties of a very significant sector, the white working class uh, voters. Um, but the other thing was, you know, we talked about progressive centrism. <laughs> we thought Democrats were in a pretty good spot in terms of like sort of promoting social tolerance, promoting anti-discrimination, trying to help lift up, you know, the, the most benighted among us. And that America really was turning into much more tolerant, liberal society in that sense. And that, you know, the sort of the whole anti-government fever to some extent had declined. Um, professionals are becoming increasingly uh, influential as a part of the electorate and certainly culturally, and they were inclined toward a, at least a moderate government uh, activism type approach. They were public spirit, public oriented in a way that say managers weren't more oriented to the bottom line. We had a sort of a whole analysis along those lines that suggested that if the Democrats could harness that progressive centrism with a sort of incremental approach to improving things, and sort of trying to be in that cultural sweet spot of being progressive, but not, not alarming to traditionalists uh, that they would uh, benefit over the long haul. And, you know, as we saw in the teens, basically, I think that that totally comes apart. The Democrats really do move very sharply to the left on pretty much any even vaguely cultural issue you can name. Um, you know, we finally got a country where like gay marriage was OK with everybody. And they said, oh. Nope, not enough. <laughs> you know, we're we're going to move toward a society where uh, you know your kids are taught gender fluidity in kindergarten, and you know there can be eighty-five different genders, and people should declare their pronouns. And oh, did I mention that you have white privilege, and you should probably examine and scrutinize your life uh, very carefully because, you know, you know you are really you are a, an oppressor. So the one is that this boutique kind of cultural leftism bled out of the universities into the wider cultural realm and basically took over, you know, the media, the advocacy groups, the foundations, the Democratic Party infrastructure is really quite remarkable and happened in a relatively short period of time. And certainly was had, certainly had a big cohort component to it that the generations that came out of uh, the universities in the you know, 21st century have really been much more oriented in this direction. Uh, and they pushed it and they found willing collaborators and sort of older people and institutions and so on. Anyway, that's a long story, and we try to break it down a lot in, uh, in our new book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? We try to put uh, some meat on those bones of how that transformation happened. I try to explain it in you know, various different areas and, and how that relates to the other big thing we say happened, which was the Great Divide. 
between the college educated and the non-college educated, particularly in certain areas of the country. It's a lot about regional inequality. It's a lot about the left behinds in the country. It's a lot about areas of the country dependent on farming, manufacturing, resource extraction, and so on. Places outside of the post-industrial cosmopolitan metropolitan areas, which are now, you know, real source basically is, is a democratic heartland in that sort of way. Um, and that these people became increasingly disenchanted with the Democrats, partly on economic grounds because of what happened in these areas, in these communities, where they did feel like they were left behind and left looked down on. And then, you know, you, you wind up in the 21st century, particularly in the teens, with this, the Democratic Party, the former party of the people, of the common man and woman, developing these seeming obsessions with things that just do not resonate at all in the lives of, you know, tens of hundreds, you know, tens of millions of working class people out there. It became less of a working class party. I mean, it is no longer the party of the working class, just like strict nose counting, you know, criteria. So uh, that's, that's important. So, you know, I think it's actually important to point out to listeners that although you get a lot of grief from the democratic left online, and although you do offer a lot of tough love uh, toward your party, you're not an independent or a never Trump or anything like that. You're, you're an ardent Democrat. And I think back to a famous post that you and Peter Layden made on Medium five years ago, oh, where you wow, wrote yeah. that bipartisan cooperation had already become impossible at that time because of Republicans' refusal to work with Democrats right, in good faith right. or compromise in any way. And this is, of course, before Trump. Uh, and you wrote that the Republican Party, quote, over the last 40 years has maneuvered itself into a position where they are the bad guys on the wrong side of history. And you added that the future of the country really depended on a Republican Party being thoroughly defeated, not just for a political cycle or two, but for a generation mm -hmm. or two. Have yeah. you had any reason since 2018 to revise that opinion? Yeah, no, I've definitely revised my opinion. I do think that neither party is really capable of any kind of solid realignment of American politics at this point. Uh, I really overestimated. I was sort of, I was in a space at that point where I was, I was trying to figure out, you know, I didn't have a lot of faith in the Republican Party, obviously, but I was sort of hoping that the Democrats would concentrate on taking advantage of the contradictions in the Republican Party while sort of keeping their, their wits about them and their sanity about them, that, that just didn't seem to, to happen. Uh, you know, partly too, I mean, I wrote it with Peter Layden, and he was a little bit more sure that you know, the Republicans were down for the count than I was. Uh, but as it turned out, I think, you know, it just, in many ways, that just was, was an over-interpretation of what was going on. The it was not too hard, and it was correct in many ways to argue that Republicans in their current iteration, and certainly in today's iteration, are, have really lost track of what it is, you know, what they need to be to be a successful conservative party. But it also became the case over time that the Democrats lost track of what it would take to be a successful and productive liberal party, and, you know, sort of how to be the actual party of the ordinary American, which is their historical brand and where they've had the, the greatest success. So, yeah, I mean, California is a good example of that, right? Because I, I had assumed that we had assumed when we were writing that, that California really was a bit of a blueprint for the future. But pretty much all the questions one might have raised about that at the time, uh, you know, just became you know, much worse over time. I mean, pretty much every weakness the California Democratic Party had in its approach to politics and, and policy had have just gotten way, way, way worse, and they haven't really corrected themselves. So, so yeah, I would no longer say California is much of a model for anything. And I think um, what we should be looking for is better behavior, better policy, and better politics out of out of both parties. So I'm no longer so sure the Republicans' you know, job of all good people is to wish for the Democrats to drive the Republicans out of business. Not that that was likely to happen anyway, but you know what I mean? I don't think they need to be defeated for a generation at, at this point. I mean, we're really, what we are on is we're on a seesaw between the parties going back and forth. And what we need is for one party or the other to make a decisive move to, to the center and to reform themselves in such a way that they are going to be attractive to a solid majority of the American people in, in some sort of durable way. You know, of course, we can't, we can't leave out the possibility. This could go on for a long time. <laughs> it certainly could happen. We could have, you know, this sort of despicable, 
uncomfortable, everybody hates at equilibrium between the parties for another number of cycles. I mean, there's no law that says it has to be resolved. I mean, we've had this kind of, you know, World War One trench warfare in politics with neither side gaining any significant ground going back, I think, really to 1992. But nonetheless, I guess the question is whether the thesis of the liberal patriot in some sense is that if the Democrats could distance themselves from the unpopular ideas and the ineffective political strategies of the progressives, would they fare better with the majority of moderate Americans? Yeah, well, that's certainly our view, that if they were able to do that, they would be able to make a more convincing offer uh, and restore their status as the party of the American working class and, and a party that could command a durable majority. I mean, I, I don't think it's just cultural issues, though, though I think those are very important. I think it's also a matter of, of economic strategy. I think that right now the Democrats, for example, are, are way too focused on climate issues, the green agenda, renewables, uberalis. I mean, I don't think this is actually a very productive economic strategy over the long run. They are now countenancing, countenancing industrial policy, which I think is a good thing. But it's one thing to countenance industrial policy. It's another thing to be successful. I mean, they're willing to, they've shown they're willing to spend money to try to invest in America, so to speak. But if you're going to do that, you still got to be able to build stuff. You got to be able to make stuff happen. You got to make the American economy hum. You got to unleash the dynamism of, you know, American people, entrepreneurship. And I, I'm not seeing that. So I think that, I mean, partly I think their problem is, and you could argue it's a little bit related to the cultural stuff, because that is the kind of social policy, uh, economic policy that people who dominate the Democratic Party are comfortable with. Let's spend a bunch of money and, you know, let's assume good things will happen, but let's not touch the regulatory and, you know, permitting structure and the general obstacles and bottlenecks that prevent us from actually doing stuff because that would annoy a lot of, you know, the interest groups within the Democratic Party. So I think that has to change. I mean, I think that those two things could change. And my third thing is they could just become an aggressively patriotic party. But that's a, that was in my three-point plan to fix the Democrats. Um, if they could do those three things, move to the center in cultural issues, promote an abundance agenda, which include the kinds of stuff I was just talking about, and embrace patriotism and liberal nationalism, I think they'd be more likely to be successful in the medium long term than, I, than they are now, where I think they're basically sort of stuck in this exactly the kind of trench warfare and you know, equilibrium we've been talking about. They will win some elections. Of course they will, um, especially if the other side is shooting itself in the foot. But I think their ability to build on, on the contradictions on the other side and actually form a durable majority and really get stuff done, which is what, you know, basically political parties should be all about is governing well, then I think it's really going to be limited. And I think that Democrats at this point sort of kid themselves that their problems are in the process of being solved because Trump and the Republicans are so awful. And besides, we did just spend a lot of money. Did I mention that? Um, and everything's going to turn out great. Trust us on this. But I think I think they're kidding themselves. You know, I really I really do. So let's go back to this uh, question of the Democrats' loss of the working class, and particularly the white working class, although also mm -hmm. increasingly minorities who are working class as well. Um, mm -hmm. Democratic Representative Marcy Kaptur, who represents Ohio's mostly working class ninth district and is the longest serving female member of the House in American history, uh, recently, as you know, made a news splash when she pointed out the extent to which Democrats tend to represent the, uh, the wealthier districts and Republicans tend to represent the poorer districts. Right. Um, and she had a two-page chart that showed the Republicans representing 152 of the 237 congressional seats where the district median income uh, is below the national right. figure. Right. And you wrote a piece uh, responding to this where you also pointed out that in 2022, Republicans carried the nationwide working class House vote by 13 points. Uh, in 2020, Trump carried the nationwide working class presidential vote by four points. And according to the States of Change project data, carried the working class vote in 35 out of 50 states, which would seem to be a pretty good basis for a Republican electoral college victory uh, in the future. And yet the Democrats don't seem particularly troubled by this. Why is that really? Well, I think um, there there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one is that over time, they have basically associated their difficulties with the working class vote as being a matter of white voters who are working class. 
And as we all know, <laughs> white working class voters who refuse to recognize their real interests and vote for the Democrats must be blinded by <laughs> racism, xenophobia, misinformation, and all kinds of other bad stuff. And they really just don't like you know, this evolving multiracial, multicultural America. That's the real problem. It's status threat. It's racial resentment, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's one reason why they could lose more and more working class votes over time and not worry about it too much. Or just basically, you know, we're on the right side of history here, to use that phrase. And over time, you know, the white working class is declining and, you know, our people are growing and everything will be great. So I think that was one uh, aspect of it. Another aspect of it then, which is related, is that they didn't see that it might actually be possible, uh, and this is where the whole, their whole theory starts falling apart, for non-white working class people to start bailing out because they don't feel the Democrats are really their party anymore. Uh, they're uncomfortable with it, and that's certainly been true about uh, Hispanic working class voters in particular. So that is uh, moving sort of, sort of undercutting that and then I think uh, another thing is that, what, you know, if you're getting at what's really insulating them from feeling bothered about that, I think it's really the movement of white college-educated voters in the suburbs in their direction. I mean, if, I mean, it's not wasn't so long ago where uh, Republicans reliably carried the white college-educated vote. That's not true anymore. The Democrats now uh, overall have an advantage. It's been growing. And if you look at certain states, it's really it's really pretty big now. And that has has definitely served as a counterbalance to the loss of working class votes. So, you know, all of this happens gradually and the character of the party changes over time. And before you know it, things are really different than they were before. And everybody is just you know, so they're comfortable with it. They figure this is just the way the world is. But let's not forget the people who who run the Democratic Party today, the people who advise it their cultural support and institutional in America. These are all <laughs> these kind of people. They're all, you know, educated, you know, primarily white, but not exclusively, of course, liberal people. These are the people they're comfortable with. They're people. And they don't think a lot about working class people. And if they think about working class people, it's, it's sort of in this primitive, you know, kind of, well, you know, we're doing stuff that's in their interest. So, the only possible reason why they might not vote for us is because they're manipulated and, and misinformed by Fox News. And, you know, they're sort of not not with not with the evolving, you know, as I say, multi multicultural, multiracial America. And there's you know very short summary. It's easy for them to write off the working class voters they've lost. And it's easy for them to feel comforted by the people like them who are increasingly you know, becoming strong supporters of their party. And in a quantitative sense, certainly are helping to make up for those working class losses. But in the process, you've got this weird, you know, going from being a working class party to being, you know, a, a party that's dominated by college educated, and particularly college educated liberals. There are now more white college educated liberals in the democratic voting pool than there are non-white working class voters. So, I mean, something's going on here and it's really making the democratic party a different party. You know, you know uh, a lot of people on the left cr uh, criticize meritocracy now, and you generally defend it. But I think what you're defending is merit as a mm -hmm. principle, whereas some of what you actually are describing sounds a lot like a criticism of the theocracy part of meritocracy. Yeah, um, no, that's right. That's right. Um, the problem with meritocracy isn't merit as a criteria. It's a problem with how merit is allocated and where opportunities for merit are given and you know where merit is, in fact, overridden by you know, sort of networks and so on that, that allow people to, who aren't even very meritorious, to act like they have a merit and, and to be rewarded on that basis. So, I mean, I, I think, that it, <laughs> look, equal opportunity was always a great idea. It's still a great idea. It's still what Democrats should stand for. And so we shouldn't, Democrats shouldn't be watering down merit, merit, merit criteria. They should be figuring out how more people can have the opportunity to acquire merit because we just should have faith that ordinary people you know, black, brown, white, red, whatever. They all are capable of acquiring merit. If you give them a hand up and give them the opportunities, that's what Americans should be about. The idea that we should allocate slots on the basis of skin color, you know, regardless of merit, or really water down a criteria based on merit is, people don't like that even. I mean, it's like, this is very popular now in the Democratic Party, but you can see, for example, in the polling on affirmative action, 
you know, Latinos don't support, you know, taking race into account in college. Even, even black people don't. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is, this is, uh, you know, social policy being made by people who, you know, have a certain ideological mindset about the world and they're purporting to represent the views of people whose views they don't even represent because that is most people in America are pretty, pretty normal. <laughs> it's worth pointing out that American values about how we should, uh, you know, uh, people should move ahead in society and how uh, people should be rewarded. It's worth pointing out that even in California, affirmative action was rejected on a ballot initiative. Yeah. 5743. Uh, yeah. Yep. So as, as long as we're taking a, a, a trip down memory lane here, um, mm -hmm. in 2012, you wrote a review for The New Republic of Joan Walsh's book, What's the Matter with White People, mm -hmm. which was largely an analysis of why the white working class had already at that time uh, largely abandoned the Democrats and the old New Deal coalition. Mm -hmm. And of course, that title was playing off of Thomas Frank's 2004 book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Right. And Walsh agreed with Frank that Republicans had used social and cultural issues to great effect to pry the white working class away from the Democrats. Um, mm -hmm. And she also blamed what we would now call neoliberalism in both parties for the disappearance of the kind of middle-class jobs for less skilled workers that had mm -hmm. undergirded a lot of the old faith in government. But Walsh also felt that liberal Democrats even then had begun to vilify the white working class and paint them yes. as what you called a cartoon portrait of hopelessly racist and mean-spirited enemies of progress. Um, yeah. hey, that was good. Did I write that? <laughs> yes, you did. But, you know, it, it seemed like a lot of that would be confined to the university campuses right. and to the sort of progressive support system for the Democratic Party that you talked about. And mm -hmm. it seemed possible at that time you could imagine someone doing what Bill Clinton and his friends at the Democratic Leadership Council had done right. uh, to reorient the Democratic Party back toward the center. Right. That seems mm -hmm. a lot less plausible now, not because there aren't a whole lot of Bill Clinton-type politicians leading this kind of movement, not only because there isn't a DLC or other kind of sim similar institutional infrastructure for that kind of centrist movement, but also because it doesn't seem that there's any way to actually restructure the universities and the philanthropies and the think tanks mm. and all these other things uh, toward some kind of new center. Does that analysis seem correct to you, or do you think that can be changed? Oh, yeah. Well, you're bringing up a lot of interesting things there. I mean, when I was listening to you, it just sort of took me back to 2012, you know, and the, that Obama election when I was at CAP and I wrote that review. And, you know, in some ways what I was trying, what I tried to do at CAP and within sort of orthodox democratic circles for a long time, you know, before and after the 2012 election was trying to get people to focus on the necessity of reaching white working class voters, that you couldn't mathematically have the kind of coalition you wanted unless you reached more of these voters and you would always be vulnerable to them moving away from you. And that, in fact, it's, you've got to open your mind and try to understand the actually existing electorate of America. It's always a bad idea to write people off in a very simplistic, simplistic way. There are reasons why they might have evolved certain views and certain political behaviors uh, there are economic factors, there are social factors, there are factors to do with how their communities have evolved, and we need to understand that. And, you know, this was sort of part of the ongoing discussion I was having with people in and around the Democratic Party and the work that I was doing, and, you know, sort of fast forward to leaving, it was like, basically, it was that point, included, I can't have that discussion. It's not happening. Nobody's listening. They couldn't care less. Uh, about what I'm saying. So, and actually, Joan Walsh is sort of an interesting example. I like Joan, and I'm still friendly with her, but I do think that while she wrote that book in 2012, I think she's a different, has a different outlook today. She works for, writes for the nation, which is a, you know, sort of aggressively left wing identitarian magazine now. And, uh, you know, basically speaks, she herself speaks fairly dismissively of a lot of these voters, I think. And my feeling, I'm not sure if her more articles are talking about it. I mean, I think she, the Trump thing really blew her mind, right? I mean, yeah, we shouldn't look down on these white working class voters. Yeah, we should try to reach them. But then Trump happened. And I think it really messed with a lot of people's heads. They just, they just couldn't wrap their minds around why anyone would vote for this guy. And even though we might have been looking down on white working class voters before too much, <laughs> maybe now that they voted, now that they put Trump into office, maybe we were, you know, maybe we, we're just sort of justified at this point. At any rate, maybe they're just hopeless. I mean, certainly I think that was part of her thinking and, and the thinking of people uh, like her. 
Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the situation we're in now is I think we do need a sort of alternative center of gravity within the Democratic Party, a sort of new DLC. And there are people who are working on this. I'm involved in some efforts that uh, may bear fruit along these lines, but there certainly has to be a sort of well-defined alternative within the Democratic Party to what you might call left progressivism or woke progressivism, whatever you want to call it, because they've got hegemony, right? I mean, the people, the AOCs don't run the party, but they're in a philosophy and approach to policy and politics. It's not too far from that really hegemonizes the Democratic Party. It certainly determines its image. Um, And moderates are just people who dissent from this or that particular political plank or this particular policy, but they don't have their own point of view on things, right? They're, they're not a coherent alternative. I mean, there's not a heartland Democrats that's really trying to have a distinct faction and point of view that could help Democrats compete in, in a lot of the places they need to compete at or getting their clock clean. I mean, not to mention, I mean, that's just places where they used to be doing well, like Ohio and I. What about places like North Dakota or Indiana or whatever? I mean, you've got to have senators from these places, man. How are you going to win in these states, unless there's a permission structure, a factional structure that allows Democrats who have pretty moderate to conservative views on a lot of stuff to run as Democrats. I mean, in other words, you know, Manchin would no longer necessarily be the most conservative Democrat. It would be great if there were like 10 other Democrats who were more conservative than Joe Manchin. Anyway, I mean, end of rant, but I think that you know, that's the sort of direction that Democrats uh, need to think about and to engage with. But uh, we're very far from that at the current time. So, uh, you know, one of the most interesting things that I see going on on the left is the supply side progressivism movement. Yes, I agree. Or the movement toward abundance, which you have written about mm-hmm. eloquently, um, or just the desire to make government work. Because as you also point out, the Democrats can write checks for infrastructure projects and the like, but that doesn't mean that anything actually gets built. And I do hope that something comes of that. And I hope that politicians will actually seize upon that largely intellectual movement and try to put it into practice. I haven't seen that step being taken yet. But, you know, um, if you look at what has happened in other countries in Europe to try to drain some of the animosities that come out of these left behind areas, you could think of, let's say, the Strukturwandel in Germany, which is the attempt to redevelop the East Mm-hmm. where most of the AFD sentiment is, uh, or even to some extent the attempt by the Tories in Britain to level up. Um, and, right, and but that wasn't too successful. That was not too yeah. successful. But you know, yeah. do you think the Democrats actually have um, a need to try to redevelop some of these left-behind areas and that that would be in their best interest politically as well as being the right thing to do for the country? Absolutely. I, I do think that. And uh, we're at the Liberal Patriot. We're trying to promote that kind of thinking uh, about sort of place-based development and some of these areas that have been left behind. We just had a piece by Tim Bartik from the Upjohn Institute last week, and we hope to feature more content like that. But yeah, I think it's, it's crucial. It's central. And I don't see how you get a lot of these voters back unless you really can offer them something that's more than the economic sort of trajectory that we've seen where you know, Democrats dominate parts of the country that are tiny in landmass but produce 65% of the GDP, and the Republicans dominate the other third, where things are, are not so great and, and, are, and, and perhaps even going south. So, yeah, I mean, I think if Democrats, Democrats need to be the party of prosperity for the ordinary person, right? And you can't do that unless you actually concentrate in the places where people aren't prosperous and things aren't going well and they aren't developing. And that, that will not be solved just by you know, sort of a general, you know, showering of money. You have to have actual policies and strategies to get things done. And that's where the, you know, your abundance agenda, supply-side progressivism, place-based development, I mean, you've got to make stuff happen, right? It's not going to be enough just to tell people, you know, you have all these great programs in mind and you're willing to actually spend a fair amount of money. Look, Hillary had, Hillary Clinton had a great rural development program. It looked, it looked good on paper at any rate. Nobody had any clue what it was about and part of the reason for that is, well, you know, Hillary's part of the reason for that, but but also it's not part of the Democratic brand at this point, right? I mean, it's the average person doesn't know that much about any you know, either of the political parties. They know a few things they associate with it. Are the Democrats associated with lifting up left-behind areas? I don't think so. Um, but if they talked enough about it and did enough about it, maybe they would. But you know, you know, that would take some effort. 
Robert Saldine, who's a senior fellow at Niskanen and also a professor of political science at the University of Montana, uh, has written a piece for us about the Democrats yes, collapse among rural voters. Right, I read it, and and they're advocating for a faction. Yeah, and and yeah, he points yeah. out that you know a lot of the uh, rural voters actually support a lot of Democratic positions, such as yes. using the government power to negotiate down the cost of prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, but Rob also points to some factors like the disappearance of local media in rural areas, as well as the nationalization of politics as, as mm-hmm. presenting obstacles to a democratic comeback there. But he also thinks that people like John Tester have shown the way, uh, Tim Ryan yeah. in Ohio. Uh, I think John mm-hmm. Fetterman actually did uh, a reasonably good job campaigning in the rural areas, knowing he could not win them over, but could at least cut into Republican margins in those areas. Yeah, actually, the shift toward, uh, toward uh, you know, Fetterman relative to Biden in 2020 was actually bigger in rural areas than it was in most of the other parts of Pennsylvania. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I yeah. think he was successful. How much of that was image? You know, I mean, but image can be very, is very important. It's hard to say, but I think he did kind of send that message either by partly by his persona and partly he showed up in these places. And, you know, he's got that sort of people in, in Pennsylvania feel they know him and they know he cares. And uh, that's good, you know, and I think Oz was a really bad candidate, you know, I mean, if I'm a rural working class person, you know, and I look at Oz and I look at Fetterman and try to figure out which one of these guys is on my side and understands my problems, you know, I can see why some people who might normally have voted Republican voted for for Fetterman. You know, um, it always is tempting to look at the opposite political side and think that their problems are easy to solve. So, you know, what could be easier for the Democrats than to embrace popular common sense positions? Well, obviously, it's not so easy as that. But what do you think in terms of what the Republican Party could do to get their own majorities if the party were so disposed to do that? Right. Well, uh, I'm not a political consultant, so my advice is worth, I suppose, what people listening to to this uh, paid for it. But, I mean, there are some obvious things, right? I mean, like... They could uh, move to the center on cultural issues themselves. I mean, they're actually, you know, some of the things they object to about the Democrats' cultural leftism are fall on receptive ears, but then they tend to push that too far in the other direction on some of these uh, hot-button issues in schools and what have you. I mean, that's a delicate dance, but I think they could do better there. I do think the abortion thing is a killer, right? I mean, I think if Republicans could figure out a way to promulgate a moderate pro-choice position, right? Like first three months, abortion on demand, and then after that only with exceptions. That's really what most voters support. But I think at this point, they're they're having a real difficulty deciding that's what they want to do. And they are you know, so affected by what the hardline pro-life part of the party wants to do. And a lot of those people really do want to ban abortion totally. So any Republican anywhere, practically anywhere in the country at this point, who is basically people associate that candidate with wanting to ban abortion outright. It's a loser, a big loser. The, de- the Democrats have so many serious vulnerabilities on crime and immigration, on sort of this stance on race and gender ideology, bringing ideology into the schools. I mean, there's a lot to there's a lot to attack there, but they've got to do it in a way that's consistent with where most voters are coming from, which are... They are not that extreme. You know, I mean, DeSantis actually is sort of an interesting example of this. He was probably on good, firm ground with the uh, parental rights bill and the so-called don't say gay thing, which, you know, despite how Democrats were patting themselves on the back about how they managed to characterize it, the basic stance of the bill that you should not teach gender ideology to eight-year-olds was actually really popular. But he's followed that up with this kind of weird new college thing, which, you know, I'm sure new college was hardly, you know, paradise of classical learning, but it just looks a little weird when you try to take over these places and, uh, you know, sort of trying to ban some of these type, even if people don't know much about gender studies programs or, or whatever, and they may in fact be full of baloney, but when you start talking about how you're going to get rid of programs, I think that's a little bit hard for people to process I mean, and then there's the whole books thing. I mean, I get like you don't want gender queer in your kid's library, but it was just so easy for the Democrats to portray this as they just want to ban all books, basically, because those people don't want you to read. The whole African-American AP studies thing was interesting. I thought it started out. You could 
kind of could make a pretty good case that the original draft was was kind of way out there. Uh, and there was something to be said, but why did, and then there was a second draft though, but which didn't get accepted either, even though it was much more, he didn't know when to declare victory in other words. So this is kind I, I think of a that's rambling, exactly right. Yeah, I no, think I, that's I, a rambling way of saying you've got to know when to declare victory when you're in the sweet spot of the electorate and not just keep on responding to your base, which is trying to push you in a certain direction. I mean, I think DeSantis had wedge issues he used to great effect against the Democrats where 80% of the public was on his side. But then he kept going to such an extent that now he's going to end up on the other end of those wedge issues. Yeah, um, I mean, he's, he has some time to recalibrate and he's got other problems to worry about, which is, brings us to the really big problem with the Republicans, which is Trump. Trump, Trump, Trump. How do you get rid of this guy? I mean, it's it's a tough one. I mean, I'm glad I'm not uh, a Republican operative because I wouldn't have a good good solution to that. But he does basically ruin everything at this point. I mean, his stamp on candidates, his stamp on the party is pretty much down the line toxic. The Democrats are praying that he's the presidential candidate because he will be easier to beat than almost anyone else. I mean, though, if I were Democrats and if I and, and what I am is also a citizen of the United States, I, I don't really necessarily want to take the risk that Trump could win again because the idea that couldn't happen is, is just wrong to me. It seems to me you have to have some understanding of fluidity of American politics. But anyway, so they want him to run and they figure he'll you know, basically be so bad for down ticket races that maybe they can even retain the Senate and so on. I mean, it's just bad all around, right? It's just like the worst thing. So, but how do you ease this guy out of here? It's tough. He's got 30, what, 30, 35% of the party who's, you know, nobody but Trump. He's our guy. There's no substitutes acceptable. But there's a whole nother big chunk of the party that uh, it would be, you know, sort of would be willing to consider and support an alternative. But how do you get, how do you mobilize those people in a strategic way so you get rid of the, the, the gorilla in the room, the big orange gorilla in the room? I don't know. I mean, maybe you know, Jeff, but I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, so far they don't seem to be doing such a great job of it. So we'll uh, if see. I- if I had the magic bullet, I would fire it, but I don't. Um, but the other thing I would also mention here is I'm, I'm a fan of uh, American Compass and American Affairs and some of the stuff you guys do. Um, there's a, a center-right, you know, sort of abundance economics that I think an industrial approach to industrial policy that I think, you know, basically is, is completely antithetical to the standard, what became the standard conservative economic playbook of, of tax cuts and dereg and sort of all around and just basically get government out of the way and let the private sector take over and the free market will will produce everything people need and it'll all trickle down to the people who need it. I mean, that form of economics is not popular. I think its track record is poor. And I think Demo- Republicans are still trying to figure a way out of that, the sort of Reagan era economics and into a different type of conservative economics that would you know, be more dynamic economically, and that would, would include a role for government in a lot of important ways, but would be done in a different way than the Democrats would do it. You know, as, you, as you've pointed out, Reagan did the Republican Party a favor by smashing that kind of uh, Paul Ryan straitjacket of ideology mm-hmm. and pointing the way for Republican well, Party you mean actually... Trump did. Trump, Trump did that, did. yes. Trump did that. But anyway... No, yeah. sorry. Trump, Trump did that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I parts. agree. I agree. But now they don't know what to do with it. They've caught... It's like the dog that caught the bus and was like, hey, we did it. But yeah. what do we do now? So uh, I wish you a lot of luck with this new book you're coming out with uh, John Judas. I I knew him from way back because he, of course, wrote a book about Bill Buckley uh, when I was doing all of that research in the Buckley archives. Um, Is it revisiting your 2002 book, The Emerging Democratic Majority, or is it on different themes largely? Well, it can be. It's a loose successor, I guess. I mean, the very first part of the book, we do talk about sort of what we got right and what we got wrong in The Emerging Democratic Majority. So we touch on it in that way. But the book is structured, as I think I might have mentioned earlier, it's basically the first part is about the great divide, the way in which sort of the country has evolved economically, the Democrats' role in that evolution in terms of their soft endorsement of neoliberalism and the way that's accentuated the divides in the country, you know, the divides between you know, not only just broadly college and non-college, but between different areas of the country and the left behind areas we were talking about and the Democrats' increasing identification with the dynamic, post-industrial, cosmopolitan, highly educated metros. 
and then the second part we talk about the sort of cultural radicalism taking over the Republican Party, I mean, the Democrat Party. Uh, and we have a chapter on race, we have a chapter on immigration, a chapter on gender and gender ideology, and a chapter on climate, which I do think has become a cultural issue, basically, uh, at this point. And then we, we tie it all together with a suggestion for the Democrats to get back to their roots, you know, being the party of the common man and woman. And we talk a little bit, we talk uh, approvingly of the way FDR, New Deal liberalism approached cultural issues. But they were not radical at all culturally. They were moderate to conservative and they were patriotic, you know, blue eagle and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's basically we're urging Democrats, you gotta go back to the future on this one to some extent. Um, that your ceiling is limited as the party of white college, white college graduates and, uh, you know, a still substantial segment of the minority population, particularly the more educated part. So, yeah, that's our story and we're sticking to it. Well, I look forward to reading it and I wish you a lot of luck with the success of the Liberal Patriot. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure to talk. Uh, to Jeff, you. it's been a groove. I love talking to you and uh, thanks for having me on. And thank you all for listening to the Vital Center podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcasting platform. And if you have any questions, comments, or other responses, please include them along with your rating or send us an email at contact at niskanencenter.org. Thanks as always to our technical director, Christy Eshelman, our sound engineer, Ray Engineering, and the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C. 